Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Aksarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Sam Tisherman, Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Tisherman is a recognized expert in induced hypothermia and is the principal investigator on the first clinical feasibility trial to study this intervention in trauma patients who have sustained a cardiac arrest. Today, we will be discussing this novel trial and its basis. We should note that Dr. Tisherman has disclosed that he is the co-author of a submitted patent entitled Emergency Preservation and Resuscitation Methods. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Let's start with just a um, overall historical perspective of hypothermia for injury. Can you briefly summarize the animal and human data on hypothermia for trauma? Well, it's been uh, very interesting because there's this dichotomy between what we see clinically, which is a fairly clear association, at least, between our trauma patients who get hypothermic, uh, having increased uh, injury severity, and then increased mortality. Uh, although the question there is, is it just an association or is it actually a cause and effect of the hypothermia increasing the mortality? And this can be compared to what we see in the lab, where it's very easy to show in a, in a variety of animal models that mild cooling during hemorrhagic shock seems to be beneficial. But the clinical trials, as you said, uh, for spinal cord, for head injury, really didn't show a signal. That was for moderate hypothermia. And your project is going to mostly talk about deep hypothermia. Well, that's that's what we'll get to. So for for this emergency preservation resuscitation, or EPR, we're talking about very deep levels of hypothermia. Um, but but just looking at our trauma patients now, if they get a little bit cool, that seems to be bad. And as you say, the trials with traumatic brain injury haven't clearly shown some benefit. But I think that's very different than what might be true in the patient who's exsanguinated to the point of cardiac arrest, which is what we're focusing on. Now, before we get to, the, to that patient, the exsanguinated patient, everyone has heard all the stories about the little boy who falls in the lake in the middle of winter, uh, is down for a really long time, is pulled out in cardiac arrest, and miraculously survives. And everyone says, well, it must be the hypothermia that protected this little boy. Um, the degree of hypothermia for him is going to be very variable. It may be mild. It may be deep. Um, how do we, do we have any ideas for why that boy is protected and how is that different than what you're proposing? Well, that's somewhat different, but that's actually the kind of thing that led us to get interested in doing this. In fact, the first study that I did in the lab as a medical student was a cold drowning, cold water drowning model uh, in the animals. Um, so that kind of led to the idea that hypothermia could be good. What, what we think is that patients actually cool fast enough, particularly if it's ice cold water, that the brain is protected before the cardiac arrest occurs, which in that situation is probably why you have these miraculous survivals after very prolonged periods underwater. Now, that's very different, though, than somebody who suffers a cardiac arrest while they're still normal thermic, because then the, the time frame for trying to save the brain is much, much, much shorter. And, and so that's the perfect segue then into the emergency preservation and resuscitation or so-called EPR trial. Let, let's talk about what is it you guys are trying to do. So the basic premise is that a trauma patient who has a cardiac arrest, 
we know that doing any kind of external CPR doesn't do any good. We know that doing an ED thoracotomy uh, still has very poor outcomes. So we want to do something better, something different. And what we really need to do is just to buy time to enable the surgeon to get the person from the ED to the operating room and control the bleeding. And so the idea that rapidly cooling to very cold temperatures, we're talking about going down to about 10 degrees centigrade, uh, can buy that time. But it's got to happen very quickly after the arrest has occurred. And so what is the study design? How are you planning on cooling these people so quickly? So the scenario that we envision is the patient comes in the trauma bay, uh, has a cardiac arrest, the trauma surgeon does the ED thoracotomy, clamps the aorta, doesn't get the person back, and now says, okay, we're going to switch to EPR. You put a large cannula into, directly into the aorta. The aorta is already right there in front of them. Uh, and then we'll infuse a very large amount of ice-cold fluid uh, with a, probably a roller pump or basically a bypass-type pump. Uh, we may or may not be able to get venous drainage from the atrium. Uh, we may just suction all the blood out, but the idea is to flush them with, with liters and liters. We're talking about 20, 30 liters perhaps of ice-cold saline to get the brain cold first, and then once the brain is getting cold enough, we can start cooling the rest of the body. Once we get down to the cold temperature of a brain, uh, tympanic membrane temperature around 10, 15 degrees, we basically then clamp everything and run up to the operating room, uh, and then the trauma surgeon would do what needs to be done to control the bleeding. And at the same time, cardiac surgery needs to be involved to establish cannulation for full bypass because to resuscitate somebody at 10 degrees, you've got to have full bypass. And so let's take those things stepwise. Um, blunt versus penetrating mechanism of injury. Well, the, the problems with blunt trauma are that, first off, the, the current data that we have for ED thoracotomies suggests that they have 1% or less chance of survival. So you're already talking about a population of people that have much worse outcomes than people with penetrating trauma, where it's not that much better, but it's at least maybe 7%, 10% survival. And the bigger problem with blunt trauma is that you don't know if they have a traumatic brain injury, and clearly flushing some of those ice-cold fluid basically totally exsanguinating them, bringing them down to these kind of temperatures. If they have traumatic brain injury, the, the, the likelihood is we're going to make that much, much worse. Uh, so we want to avoid that. We want to avoid the massive trauma that's not even fixable. And so we're going to go for the penetrating trauma that is fixable, not the guy who got shot 15, 18 times. One or two hopefully reasonable woundings that can be repaired quickly. Um, you mentioned that the patient has to cardiac arrest in the trauma bay. Are they allowed to cardiac arrest prior to arrival? Within a short period of time. From the, as the protocol is now, it's within five minutes. So we don't want the guy that the medics find maybe has a weak pulse, but then they have no pulse and they start CPR, and it's now 15 minutes later they arrive in the ED. Uh, one of the key things is that right now we just want to show that it's possible to do this and we might have some good outcomes. We certainly think that once we do that, we can broaden the inclusion criteria, but we're trying to select out the patients who have the best chance of some benefit of doing this. But we also don't want to do this in people who don't need it. So we're trying to find that fine line between those two. And that kind of gets back to the concept you said about the boy who 
fell into the lake. The the warm ischemic time is is what you need to minimize. Correct. Exactly. So we want to cool them as fast as we can once we recognize that we need to do this. And so playing this out now, the guy's been shot a couple of times. He's in my trauma bay. He cardiac arrests, let's just say, right in front of me or just, just prior to arrival. I open the chest. I decide we're going to go for it. And what is the total amount of arrest time that I am allowed as the surgeon um, before I have to start rewarming the guy? How long can we go? Well, that's a good question. Um, from looking at our laboratory experience, uh, we've gone out with relatively consistent success to 90 minutes, two hours. If you look at cardiac surgical literature and doing elective cases with circulatory arrest, 45 minutes to 60 minutes is what's considered relatively safe. Uh, so I think from our lab experience, that gives us a little bit of a buffer to say that probably 60 minutes is the maximum that you can do. But the key thing is you don't have to fix everything. All you need to do is get some control of bleeding, release everything exposed, so that as you start some perfusion up again at 10 degrees, you can control what's the bleeding that's going on. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm thinking this through uh, on a step-by-step basis. And uh, although implementation of the actual cannula and the aortic flush and all is, is going to be uh, technically challenging within a short time frame, I, I wonder if it's equally challenging transporting that guy to the OR as the clock is ticking and yet another 15 minutes goes by by the time you move all the stuff upstairs and get yourself positioned and ready to go. Yeah, clearly that's going to add some, at least it's cold ischemic time. Uh, and we just have to, to minimize that. I mean, <clears throat> you're going to arrive in the operating room. There's no delay for any anesthesia or anything like that. Um, any kind of extra cannulation for vascular access is going to have to be via cut downs. Um, so hopefully that won't delay anything. So we should be able to quickly operate when you get there. But certainly all of those logistics need to be worked out before saying it's okay to start trying to do this. And to be clear, the patient at this point in time has fully exsanguinated because not only did they bleed to death from the gunshot wounding, but we came along and flushed them out with pure saline. There is no hemoglobin in this patient whatsoever. That's right. Um, so that brings up a couple things. One is being able to find the bleeding sites, but one thought there is that, well, if you haven't found everything, as you start reperfusing and start slowly bringing in some blood in the circulation, you'll see what you missed in the first time around. Um, and also thinking through how to basically fully uh, restore their blood volume. Um, and, and I've talked with both our cardiac anesthesiologists and our perfusionists and cardiac surgeons uh, about how to do that because they'll want to give blood and some clotting factors, but while they're still on the pump, they won't want to give platelets until they're warmed up and potentially coming off. And so there are some intricacies there that uh, we'll all be kind of feeling out as we do it. Yeah, I, I can't think of another model where you have to reconstitute whole blood without transfusing whole blood because you guys are going to be transfusing component therapy like everybody else does. It's true, although we, we essentially do that all the time with massive transfusions, but there's still some of the patient's original blood in the circulation. But when, if you've given somebody 20, 30 units of blood during your resuscitation, there's not a whole lot of their own stuff left either. Um, in your animal models, did you ever have to reconstitute whole blood, or did you just 
transfuse back the animal's own shed blood? The animal models are fairly easy because we could we could take off some of their own blood when we initiate the the, the uh, hemorrhage. Uh, in fact, what we did with a lot of our studies was to um, uh, do a splenectomy and t- taking in the blood out of the animal a couple weeks ahead of time. So we had some of their own blood in the refrigerator that we could give back. So it's always whole blood, which clearly we we don't have in the trauma world. And prior to us uh, starting this recording, you were sharing some of the results you got from the animal lab. Um, if you want to just kind of briefly go through some of the animal data that forms the basis of the study. The work that, that we've done um, started off with fairly short periods of arrest, and we worked our way up to two hours just with infusion of cold saline. We found that to make two hours safe, we had to cool them down to a tympanic temperature of 10 degrees. And we were focusing on brain temperature because that's the most vulnerable organ. Uh, at least in these models, survival is not much of an issue. Uh, it was the brain that we were looking at. We found uh, some potential benefit in adding oxygen and glucose, and it's not clear whether that's related to effects on metabolism or some physical chemical effects of those uh, additions, but that's something that, that could be looked at. We did do one study where we randomized the animals to sort of a more routine resuscitation with giving them blood, giving them fluids, and um, just doing CPR, and none of them survived, whereas if we flushed them and left them with no circulation for an hour, they all survived. So, again, showing this might work. Um, Hassan Alam and Peter Ree have done some similar work in a somewhat similar model uh, and similarly found some benefit. They show that you could actually create multiple injuries and repair them when the animal is at 10 degrees with no blood in the circulation like this. They found that rapid cooling is good, perhaps slower rewarming is good. Uh, so it's all kind of coming together, at least as much as we can do this in the animal lab, that all this actually could work in patients. And so you mentioned uh, that one of the animal uh, models you use co-infused glucose and oxygen. What about other stuff? Is there any anti-scavenger stuff I should be infusing? Anything else that we can do pharmacologically? Well, hopefully there will be. Um, right now, at least our experience has been that drugs don't seem to do much on top of the hypothermia. One of our goals ha- has always been to hopefully find either drugs or a special fluid that would be beneficial and that we wouldn't have to go down to 10 degrees. It would be really nice if you could buy an hour or two of no flow at you know, 25 degrees to 30 degrees if you could add the right additives, but so far we haven't found that. I mean, there's a lot of research going on in various um, mechanisms, what goes on in the brain with ischemia and reperfusion um, that might lead to drug therapies and might lead to novel fluids. Um, the work that Hassan Alam and Peter Ree have done uh, was done with a specialized fluid that was designed specifically for uh, maintaining cellular integrity at very cold temperatures. But we've never compared that fluid versus saline or other types of fluids. So this is ripe for lots of research, but so far nothing else has panned out. And I guess the next question, which is, of course, more uh, conjecture and speculation, is the rewarm. What target do you rewarm to normal thermia, or can you land at 32, 33 and pretend this guy just had a medical cardiac arrest? 
That's an excellent question. Um, our, our current thinking, um, which is in our, our current protocol, is to rewarm just to 34 degrees and keep them there just like somebody who's had a normal thermocardiac arrest. With a caveat that if you get to 34 degrees and the patient's wildly coagulopathic despite replacing all the factors and platelets and whatever else you can do, then we may need to warm to 37. So ideally for the brain, keeping them at 34 is probably a good thing to do, but whether or not that'll be feasible and safe um, is yet to be seen. So this is all great idea, but it sounds a little crazy. What regulatory issues did you have to go through to get this thing uh, even accepted? Well, like any study in the resuscitation arena where you can't get consent prospectively from the patients, we have to get uh, approval from the FDA. And the, the FDA also has to approve the off-label use of the things that we're using. Um, we also had to have similar approval from the Army because they're funding it. Uh, and then you have to go through the uh, regulations for doing a study with the exception from informed consent, which includes going to the IRB first, getting the IRB to agree to your plan, and then doing community consultation, public disclosure, to let the community know what's going on, get their input, uh, and then go back to the IRB, uh, back to the Army. Um, and then one additional thing that we are doing as part of this, which is different than just saying a drug study for resuscitation, is training all the personnel that are going to be involved and even uh, making sure they're credentialed officially to be able to do this. Just out of curiosity, what did the community say when you went out to do your community-informed consent? There was concern raised mostly about the demographics of our inclusion criteria uh, since this at the moment will involve just patients with penetrating trauma who have a cardiac arrest that typically is young males of minorities so we uh, try to focus uh, at least part of our efforts on that population by using a random digit telephone survey based on where our patients come from in our trauma registry we also did a, a survey in trauma clinic uh, of people coming through there. So again, it's, it's the patients who've had trauma uh, who can answer the surveys. Uh, and we also made sure that our advertising got to uh, local minority newspapers. But in terms of actually questioning the study itself, in terms of what we were doing, that was less of an issue. I think people realize, like we do as trauma surgeons, that the current standard of care doesn't do very well, and we can do something better, and trying to do something better is going to be important. And so you haven't had that many people opt out of the study? We haven't had anybody ask for an opt-out. Yeah, i, I got to say this is very impressive. I can just imagine myself trying to describe, I'm going to uh, flush you of all your blood and then freeze you, and uh, well, how do you feel about that? that? That could not have been an easy task. Well, if we say up front that your chance of survival with what we normally do is less than 1 in 10, people might have a little more interest in trying something that's above, potentially has some uh, benefit. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. So where do things stand with EPR? When Have you guys started? When are you going to start? We're very close. 
we are finishing the last parts of the training and the regulatory stuff, and hopefully within a couple months we'll get started. How many sites? Well, uh, we've gotten uh, interest from multiple centers. Since we're doing this as a feasibility trial, um, we're actually only looking at enrolling about 10 patients who get EPR and then 10 patients who meet the criteria but don't get it because the right team isn't around. And then we had to compile that data and go back to the FDA and potentially change the study, uh, change the, the inclusion criteria, change the protocol, and then maybe another 10 patients. So it's going to be an iterative process. Um, and because it's so novel, our approach has been to basically bring up one site at a time. So we're very close to getting started in Pittsburgh. Uh, we're working with um, several other sites, uh, at least five others. Um, University of Maryland will be next. They've already started some of the regulatory stuff. Uh, but over the next couple of years, slowly bring on other sites. So you figure by the time all is said and done, uh, two years or more to get the at least the first 10 patients out? Hopefully 10 patients within two years. That That's uh, maybe optimistic goal, but we'll see. Wow. Well, I got to say, uh, this is clearly very novel, clearly very needed. The standard of care absolutely falls short. Um, of any kind of a, a result that we can um, extol as a good thing. Uh, and I think we all look very forward to hearing the at least the inter interim analyses of your uh, study. We've been speaking today with Dr. Sam Tisherman regarding the role of induced deep hypothermia following cardiac arrest in the trauma population. I'd like to, again, thank you for taking the time to share your views with us and compliment you and really all of your colleagues in this field on your ongoing work this concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org.